we hear so much, so many wonderful things about Falls Bible Church and your pastor. Of course, we know him pretty well. And uh, we're so glad that he's the president. That's why he was chosen as the president of this foundation, the Brian Literature Foundation. He's a thoughtful man and a very generous-hearted man who loves people and cares about souls. And we all thought he was the man to be president of the foundation. We certainly pray God's blessing on him and on you people. Uh, you pray for me. I'm going to try to speak, but there are noises in my head. It's uh, sometimes hard just to feel I'm getting to you, <laughs> but I hope I am. Uh, Brother Sadler asked me to say some things about Berean Bible Society. I don't know what to say except that I had somehow thought, I don't know, but I had somehow thought that as I got older, things would just taper off a little bit and they'd become a little easier. But they have never, that work has never been easy since the first day it started as a little magazine. But, you know, it's an amazing thing what the grace of God can do if you just want to be used of him and if you if you ask him to let you let him let you be used uh, I've never said this to any congregation anywhere any gathering I've never written it not even in a letter but I'll tell you this tonight it's been a battle almost since I got born <laughs> uh, when I was a little bit of a baby Mother was so worried about me, she said, Papa, what'll I do with Neil? He just doesn't sleep. I go into the bedroom where his, where his crib is, and he's standing up looking all around the room. But I'll tell you this secret, too. She always said I was a happy little baby. It wasn't hard to take care of me. So I must not have needed that much sleep. I don't know. But I've had that battle to try to get to sleep somehow for a long time, and it's gotten so in the last 20, 30 years, I just don't fight it. When I get prostrate, I seem to get wide awake. So then I get up again and I do some reading or writing. And in fact, a good portion of these books that some of you have read have been done at night when everybody was quiet, no phones. And uh, that's a great time to think and to pray and to write. Four times I've had major surgery and several times hospital stays for other reasons. For 34 years I had uh, migraine headaches every Monday again, those headaches like steamrollers and I'd get real sick, you know, and then i just hide. But uh, then a secretary of mine, after 34 years, a secretary of mine begged me to go to an allergist about it, and I did, and that was just what evidently had been in the mind of the Lord, because two weeks and my headaches were gone, and I've never had headaches like that since. I've had, I, right now I have a noisy head and a tight head and a mixed up head, but it's still on, as you see. It's a big one, too. But uh, now, of course, about two years ago in March, that's about two and a half years ago, tinnitus struck. And that is a 
rather frustrating disease too. But you know, even now, I can't type two hours at a time. It's an hour and a half and I have had it. And it's the same with writing or anything that takes concentration. But I do thank the Lord for a clear mind yet and that I can study and pray and write. And if you just keep at it, isn't it amazing what the Lord will do if you just keep at it, keep at it, keep at it. And he certainly blesses. Now, by the grace of God, as you know, we have about 120, 25 broadcasts, including one into into mainland China and uh, shortwave. And uh, our newspaper article goes into newspapers all across the country. We've got about 7 million readers now. The searchlight goes into every state in the Union and some 60 foreign countries. And I'm so glad that we have Brother Jordan. (laughs) Brother Jordan takes care of many of the details that I just can't do now. He answers most of the letters and takes care of many of the details. And I can do a little at a time what I've enjoyed most of all, the thinking and the writing. And uh, I still preach over the radio. By the way, is there a station here that you can hear us on? How many hear us on the radio? Oh my, that's wonderful. How many get the searchlight? Why do I have to say anything about Brim Bible Society here? <laughs> anyway, you pray for us. Pray for Brother Jordan. I talked to him this afternoon, and he said the last thing he said before he hung up was say, say hello to everybody. I don't know how in the world I can say hello to everybody, but uh, all you who are here who know Brother Jordan, hello from him, and We're just so thankful God has given him to us, and by the grace of God, he'll fit in as a wonderful president when the time comes for the Lord to take me. He's a president now, but uh, I'm the boss. I mean, (laughs) no, I'm still the, the founder and the senior there, so he comes to me, and I sometimes go to him and volunteer advice. But uh, the Lord has uh, made it a wonderful uh, combination. And by his grace, we're still going ahead, and it is not petering down. The orders for books come in more than ever, and then those letters. And I might just say this one thing before I go to the message of the evening. When you read our mailbag in the searchlight, will you try to remember something? They're not the best of the excerpts. We can't put the best ones in because we don't want to embarrass people. Maybe there's somebody really struggling about salvation and, and uh, we don't dare put things like that in because it would embarrass the one who wrote. But there are many like that. So many letters we get, we say, thank God, thank God for changing somebody's heart and uh, changing lives and even homes, households. So that's quite enough of that. <laughs> Now let's go to a a scripture I think every one of you must know by heart. 1 Timothy 1, 15. I'm going to read it, and I'm just going to trust you to trust me. I'm going to read it, and you just leave me alone now. Don't criticize me yet as I read it. I'm not going to change it, except in a way. 1 Timothy 1.15 This is a faithful saying 
I take it a faithful saying is one you can count on, one that you can act upon, and it won't let you down. This is a faithful saying, and worthy of all acceptation, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Do you believe that? Oh, sure, you say, sure, I believe it. I do too, but... A lot of people around us don't, and some people think they do and they don't. The modernists don't believe that. They believe we ought to follow Jesus and try to be like him. And I've seen real born-again Christians who ought to be well-taught with a thing on their bumper, maybe, uh, I'm following Jesus. (laughs) You better not do that. You'll be in trouble. But no, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And it's not by following Jesus that we, as the modernists teach, make ourselves acceptable to God. The Christian scientists don't believe it. They don't believe we need saving. (coughs) There's a little Christian science bookstore in Oak Park in a place that we often pass. And I stopped in one day. I saw a woman standing there all alone. So I stopped in and I said to her, I'd like to ask you a question. Suppose I felt very guilty about something I had done. And I think that led her to believe that I did. And that was okay. I said, suppose I felt very guilty about some sin I had committed. And, uh, and I just don't know what the consequences will be. God knows all about it. And I believe in God. Do you? Yes, oh, of course, you know. And, and God has to be just. What shall I do? Well, the first thing she tried to prove to me is that there is no such thing as sin, you know. There's no such thing as sin. And, well, the upshot, I said to her, but, but why do I feel so guilty about it? Why am I so worried about when I'm going to meet God, what's going to happen? And, uh, well, she talked a lot but didn't say anything. And then I tried to really give her the gospel, but I don't think she even began to understand what it was about because she didn't believe that she was a sinner. That's where it really started. She said, I wasn't either. No matter what I'd done, I wasn't a sinner. So they don't believe it. And, beloved, today... If you notice over the radio and TV and newspapers, the media, there is another Jesus being preached by many. It's so nice to know him and so nice to walk hand in hand through life's way with him and all that stuff, you know. But nothing about being saved from sin and coming really to know him as our own Savior. Well, I do believe that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners like me, poor sinners, and thank God he did. And I want to give you four reasons tonight why I believe that. Number one, the person who wrote this. It is so important to notice and to observe who wrote this. I didn't finish the verse, did I, when I read it? Because it's, it's true. It's, you can't just read to a congregation, uh, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. They think I was referring to myself, <laughs> you see. And uh, this doesn't speak of me. 
This is written by the Apostle Paul, and it was not written in an offhand way. This was not some casual after-dinner conversation. It was not anything carelessly written. Oh, read the record of Paul's hatred of Christ and of all that stood for that he stood for and all that stood for him in this world. He beat the believers in every synagogue in Jerusalem. Uh, he dragged men and women to court to have them put to death. And he says, when, when they were put to death, I gave my vote against them. He held the clothes while Stephen was being stoned. He says, being exceedingly mad against them, I pursued them even unto strange cities. But finally there was one strange city. We don't read anything. You know, the Bible doesn't tell us just what we want to know. It tells us what we ought to know. <laughs> The Bible was not written to satisfy our curiosity because I would surely like to know about some of the other cities he went to. But this was the last one on his way to Damascus, and uh, it was with him like it was with Nathan, not Nathan Hale, uh, uh, the man that was hanged as a spy in, this, in the Revolutionary War. Uh, there were several of them, but... Uh, you don't have any of that. I'm appealing to my wife for help. Andre, Major Andre. It's, Major Andre wrote that poem two days before he was hanged. He was saved. But he knew, he knew all about it, like many people today do. Maybe some of you here tonight. But he says, but thus the eternal counsel ran. Almighty love, arrest that man. <laughs> and so Paul was arrested on the way to Damascus and so gloriously saved. So it makes a difference who wrote this. This was written by the chief of sinners. And should there be one unsaved person here tonight, this is why God chose him. The world was ready for the judgment to fall. Prophetically, everything was ripe. And Peter at Pentecost said, this is it. This is that which was written by the prophet Joel. What was written by the prophet Joel? Two things are going to happen in the last days. He'll pour out his spirit on his own. He'll pour out his wrath on his enemies. And he poured out his spirit on his own. So Peter could say, this is it. It had begun. But oh, bless God, the day the prophetic program was interrupted. And God said, no, no, not yet, not yet. He's not willing that any should perish. He's slow to anger and plenteous in mercy. So he took the chief of sinners, the leaders of the world's rebellion, and saved him. What a change. Oh, you could just, we could speak for hours, couldn't we, on that one subject. So it's important to notice who wrote it. Let's just go back now uh, to 1 Timothy. I hope you have it still open. Look what he says. The 12th verse, I thank Christ Jesus our Lord, who hath enabled me, he empowered me, for that he counted me faithful, putting me into the ministry who was before a blasphemer and a persecutor and injurious. They say this man, he ought to be in the ministry. He's lived so faithfully for the Lord and he's been so uh, thoughtful and such a student of the word. Uh, Paul was a student of the word with uh, a blind spot in his eye. <laughs> he was a student of the word that wanted to find anything against Christ that he could. But God saved him. He says, I obtained mercy because I did it ignorantly in unbelief. 
And the grace of our Lord was exceeding abundant with faith and love which is in Christ Jesus. Now, against this background, this is how important it is to study the Bible in context, beloved. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptation that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. Howbeit for this cause I obtain mercy, that in me first Jesus Christ might show forth all long suffering for a pattern to them that should believe on him to life everlasting. So, uh, this is only really a little of the context. The whole of Paul's epistles and the good part of the book of Acts are more of the context. And you read the amazing grace of God. That saved Saul of Tarsus. He said, how did he do it? Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. I don't have a clock. Yes, I have a watch. All right. When it closed, generally 10, 11 o'clock? Okay. Thank you very much. There's another reason I believe it. Because God wrote it. I'm sure Paul never dreamed it. Such is the wonder of inspiration that these writers write perfectly freely. Nothing is, uh, Paul says, I, Paul, say, he doesn't say God says to you, he says that too in some places. I, Paul, say unto you, and Luke is Luke, and Matthew is Matthew, and they're all themselves as they write. But here, later, he found out, I'm sure when he was in heaven, that his epistles, uh, including and adding to it, or plus, I should say, you'll find me losing words once in a while because it's hard to combat that factory in my head. But uh, Paul's epistles added to the Acts and the Gospels were added to the Old Testament, and this is all part of God's holy word. Now we have a real reason for believing it. Yeah, but somebody says, what if it isn't true? Well, that reminds me of the story of Pat and Mike. Have you ever, any, anybody ever heard the story of Pat and Mike here? Uh, you remember Pat was passing Mike's house when Mike was building a wall to enclose his yard. And uh, Pat said to Mike, why are you building that wall? twice as wide as it is high. Well, Mike said, I'm doing that so that if they ever throw it over, it'll be twice as high as it was before. <laughs> you see? Well, isn't it so with the Word of God? Poor Madeline O'Hare. Poor Norman Lear. Some of these wicked, godless people pontificate on the word of God and tell us all oh, nonsense, you know. And they're so, what word can I say, can I use, but stupid, that they don't even realize that they're getting old and slowly their body is wrinkling and getting bent over and sickness is, is uh, ravaging them and soon they're going to be gone. And then what? Oh, they just conclude. We're, they, we, you get thrown into the ground, that's the end of it, you see. A barber right in Milwaukee said that to me one time. I said to him, aren't you afraid of God swearing the way you do? God's word says he will not hold him guiltless. 
that taketh his name in vain. You can't curse God like that and get by with it. And he let out a swear word and said, I'm my own God. I said, you, your own God. Why, already you're wrinkled and your shoulders are bent and you're losing hair and you're going to get sick and die and then they're going to put you in a hole in the ground, your body, and you hope that's all. But you know that a certain very important book says it's appointed unto men once to die and after this the judgment. By that time he's going like that, you know. And he... I tried to lead him to the Lord, and I went away only hoping. You've had that happen to you too, haven't you? And he promised me he'd go to church next Sunday, and he did. And he went to a church, and he was insulted immediately when they took up a collection. But he didn't go to the right church anyway. So I had another chance to talk to him, but I don't know whether he ever trusted the Lord as a Savior. But isn't that foolish? These men who are their own God, as it were. You know, I'm the captain of my fate. Oh, boy, captain of my fate. Turn with me, if you will, to, to Ephesians. There's a passage in chapter 4 that I think is so appropriate to these wise people who think they know that we Christians are, are simpletons or whatever their definition would be. Verse 17 of Ephesians 4. This I say therefore, and testify in the Lord, that ye walk henceforth, walk not as other Gentiles, unsaved Gentiles walk, in the vanity, the shallowness of their mind, having the understanding darkened, Alienated, being alienated from the life of God through the ignorance that is in them because of the blindness of just. Think of that. That's what God says about the wise unbelievers of this world. So I believe it because it's in this book which has withstood every test it has ever been given and handsomely like Mike, Mike's wall. Every time it is opposed and criticized and ridiculed, it stands higher than it ever did before in the minds and in the uh, thinking of, of, of thoughtful men. You know that little poem of the, what's that poem of the blacksmith shop? The boy stopped at the smithy's door and heard the anvil chime, you know, and here this uh, smithy was making a horseshoe. And the boy noticed that all over the floor were old hammers, battered old hammers. And he said, how many hammers have you had to wear and batter all those, uh, how many anvils, I'm sorry, how many anvils have you had to wear and batter all those hammers so? Just one, he said. And then with twinkling eye, the anvil wears the hammers out, you know. <laughs> And that's how it's so very true. There they go, one after another, one after another, goodbye, with no hope beyond the tomb, no light beyond the grave. And they were stupid enough not to ask for a road map. They were stupid enough not to ask, I wonder if God has given us some way that we can know, you know, whether our future is secure. But they were too dumb, if you please me, I put my fingers to my mouth to do that. So I believe it because it's part of the Word of God. 
And this book has really stood the, it stood the test for me. I must say that a moment. I must hesitate just a moment to say that when I was a teenager, there was another teenager that really had me worried. He'd smile and he'd slap me on the back and say, huh, some God you've got. He says, give all the glory to me and otherwise you go to hell. You see, he wants all the glory for himself. Oh, that did seem, if, if human beings said, give me all the glory, that would be bad, and I wasn't mature enough to distinguish between the two. So I began reading some of these atheistic books and books that uh, were opposed to the Bible and to God, and then I read some of the books by men of God, by men of God who defended that book, and oh, there were no two ways about it. I got to love this book, and it became, it came to mean more to me than it ever had before. Well, I said I was going to give you four reasons, so I better hurry on. Reason number three. I believe that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, even the chief of sinners, because it is the only solution to the two greatest riddles of the universe and of all history. Now, I said uh, this meeting has taken me by surprise. I haven't spoken in any church for a long time now, and I hope you'll forgive me. I don't know whether it was in this coming searchlight or in one just passed that I put a little thing about the key to heaven. Did I put that in? Have you read that, anybody? The key. Well, I'll, I'll just repeat it anyway if I did. The key to heaven you know that verse in 1 Corinthians 15, 3, where we read, among other things, that uh, Christ died for our sins? Now, that little phrase contains the two greatest, uh, greatest riddles, absolutely insoluble, except for one thing. Those two riddles are the death of Christ, and the sin of man, Christ died for our sin. Now, those two standing alone are absolutely insoluble. I can understand how wicked men would take Christ and spit at him and slap him so that his face rocked and pull his beard and his hair and uh, beat him with rods and scourge him and nail him to a tree. I can understand that's terrible. But that's the way human nature is. Look look at the history of man. And I can understand old Aunt Lottie, my nanny. My, We had a family of ten, and Mother had to have a nanny, you know, to help bring us up. A godly woman. But I remember her showing us pictures of the Passion Week, you know, just before the crucifixion of Christ. And she'd show one thing after another where Peter betrayed him and... and uh, uh, Judas denied him, and she said, oh, wasn't it too bad? Wasn't it too bad? Yes, it was too bad, but we've learned something more about that, haven't we? It's not just a riddle to us, but you see why it's so insoluble a riddle, seemingly, is where God enters in. I can understand man doing that to a good man, but how God could stand by and let the wickedest of men do all that to him and nail him to a tree and not do anything to save him or to defend him or to, or to uh, pour out retribution on his enemies. How are you going to explain that unless Christ died for our sins? 
you see, for Christ was God, God the Son. Now it's the same with our sins. When I was a young young teenager, I used to put the blankets over my head and say, Oh God, what do I do? I'm not saved. I don't know Christ. I don't know you yet. What am I going to do? I'm such a sinner. And I knew I was even at that young age. I was really convicted about sin. But I had no answer, you see. And there is no answer unless Christ died for our sin. Why did God allow sin? This man says, well, I didn't bring myself into the world. I can't help that I was a son of a drunkard and a harlot and so on and uh, got to live this kind of a life. Why should I be blamed? Yeah, but wait a minute. I can, I can under, there are answers for all of that, but why did God create man as he did? So that he have a choice between right and wrong and very possibly might choose wrong. And uh, why did he put before him a, a very choice, put before him what some people would call a temptation. Now, don't you eat, you can eat of all of them, but don't you eat of that tree? Well, there are all kinds of sub-answers, you might say, that God wanted fellowship with somebody who could love him or could hate him, but would love him even though they might hate him. Uh, he wanted fellowship with somebody that would obey him even though he could rebel against him. He wanted uh, the faithfulness of people who could be unfaithful if they wanted to. In other words, he wanted free, he wanted a free moral agent and free uh, heartfelt love from his creatures. Yeah, but that still doesn't, why, why take it out on the creatures then? Because most of them didn't love him so. And there is no answer except one thing. When you say the words, Christ died for our sins, Oh, then what question can you ask? Can you say that he didn't love us? When Christ left heaven's glory and all the blessedness of the angels that served him and the Father that loved him and went down to the depth and died on a cross, can you say he didn't love you? And so on. I could take more time now, but all those questions you have, bring them to Calvary and they evaporate. <laughs> That's why I've said about 1 Corinthians 15, 3, the key to heaven is that in that little word, for. Those two insoluble or seemingly insoluble problems are solved when we put the little word for in there. Christ died for our sins. That's not the whole, that's not all the gospel. Oh, there's much, 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 much more to the gospel of grace. But it's all based on that. It's all based on the death of Christ for my sins. And I shall never forget the day when I first really saw the truth of 1 Corinthians 15, 3. He paid for my sins. Oh, my, and the burden rolled away. The burden rolled away, and I was free, and I've, I've had a happy life with any disappointments or discouragements or problems or difficulties or snags or self-brought uh, uh, problems, thank God underneath it all it has been a truly happy life because my sins are gone. Christ paid for them. And that's why I do believe with all my heart that Christ Jesus came into the world for one reason, to save sinners. I think of that time when 
you know, that's not so long ago now, maybe two years, when that airplane uh, in, left the Washington airport and didn't even get started very far and plunged into the, into the Potomac River. And you saw the pictures, oh, most pathetic pictures of people uh, screaming and, and trying to hold on to little things. And this man, you no doubt read about it then, if you haven't, if you've forgotten it, but I'm sure you read and saw about it then. But this young man, uh, his father and he were in a pickup truck and they pulled alongside to see what the crowd was about, what had happened. And he saw these people in the water, among them this woman that he finally was used to save. He didn't even stop to think. He didn't think of consequences. He ran out of that truck and down the embankment and in the water. And he saved that girl's life, you see. And of course, he was made a great hero. And he later said, I, I, I don't feel I was a hero at all. I just saw what had happened. And I, I didn't even think. <laughs> and, and that's a, a wonderful picture of what salvation was. Jesus, our Lord, didn't count the cost. He came down into this world. Oh, we don't. We say as we read the papers and see TV and hear radio, we say, what a wicked, wicked world we're living in today. And it's becoming worse. Somebody said to Mr. O'Hare, don't you think the world's getting worse all the time? He said, of course, there are more people in it. <laughs> well, that's uh, probably part of it. But we're living in very, very wicked, wicked times. And... Uh, People wonder, you know, what's the answer to it all? Oh, we've got to get this wonderful answer to them that Christ Jesus came into this, not to be with us, to become one of us, to partake of our weariness and weakness and disappointment and discouragement. He knew it all. He was tested in every point like as we are, except he never submitted to sin. He never never gave in. So... I do believe, and I think with increasing reason as I go along here, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Before I come to the last point, what about any unsaved person? I know in a size group of this size, there's generally somebody that's not saved. You may be a church member. You may come regularly, and yet you've never really been saved. You don't know Christ. You don't know God, and you're not really saved. What about you? He came into the world to save sinners. Would you let him down? Will you, will you, will you grieve him by not accepting the grace that he so richly offers? Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. There's one more reason I believe this, and oh, this one I'm so glad to talk about. It works. <laughs> it works. This is the only way of salvation. This is the only thing. How does Paul say, let's go to 1 Corinthians 1, just a minute. That's so powerful there. 1 Corinthians 1, verse 20. Paul says, where is the wise? All right, he's going, he's a, he's a, challenging these worldly wise men now. Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this world? Hath not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? And beloved Christian friend, won't you agree with me? I'm not trying to make you, but isn't it true that when we hear these ungodly people, 
over the radio or TV, sitting around tables discussing religion, they are so far afield, it's just sheer stupidity. Just like we read from, first, from Ephesians uh, 4, and uh, what is it, 17 and 18, I believe. Any poor Christian can say, oh my, how can they be? How can they say that? It's so foolish. Well, here's what he says. Hath not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For after that in the wisdom of God. Now this is a wise thing for God to do. After that in the wisdom of God, the world by wisdom knew not God. In his wisdom, he prevented them from getting to know God by their wisdom. Get it? Otherwise, ma, wouldn't you have a lot of people, you know, boasting of the, their great wisdom, how they had found the way to be at peace with God and to go to heaven and all of that. But God in his wisdom didn't let that happen. He just let human nature take its natural course. And the natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God. So he says, when... Uh, or after that, in the wisdom of God, the world by wisdom knew not God. It pleased God by the foolishness in, in, in the received text now, in the Greek, the article is there, by the foolishness of the preaching. Not the foolishness of preaching, not that it ever could be foolish to preach, but the thing preached seems so foolish. Just read on. For the Jews require a sign. If you're a man from God, you can do miracles. No man can do these miracles except God be with him, Nicodemus said to Christ. The Jews require a sign. And the Greeks, they love wisdom. But we preach something that's an offense to both. We preach Christ crucified. To the Jews, what is this message? A stumbling block. The Jew stumbles over it again and again. He says, they say I did it. Well, they said his blood be upon us and upon our children. And only a little while, maybe a half a year later, they're saying you intend to bring this man's blood on us. They're welching already, you see. And they've been welching ever since. They say, don't blame that on the Jew now. Well, we're not blaming. God's not blaming anything on the Jew now. God has shown how I did it, <laughs> how he it was is in his mind. And he gave Christ in a man's hands, knowing what they would do with him in order to save him. But let's go on. We preach Christ crucified unto the Jews a stumbling block. And unto the Greeks, what is Christ crucified? Foolishness. Well, the learned Greek looks at the cross and says, Oh, what folly, what folly. He couldn't save them in his life. How could he save them when he's hanging on a cross in death? He couldn't save himself. How could he save others? And to the Greek it's foolishness. But, here's a strange thing, unto us, both Jews and Greeks, the preaching of Jesus Christ is Christ the power of God and also the wisdom of God. We say now we can see God had to be just. There was no other way our sins had to be paid for before he could be just and the justifier of him that believeth in Jesus. And so we rejoice in the preaching of the cross, 
which is to them that believe, to the called both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. And isn't it true that it works? He said, it pleased God by the foolishness of the apparent foolishness of the preaching, the preaching of the cross, to save them that believe. Save me. Save you. Tell me the philosophers or the great thinkers of the day who don't believe this book. Tell me how many they can produce who have found lasting joy, who have found an undergirding peace and, and uh, the joy of being justified before God. Tell me where you can find them, where they can, who has produced them. My dad, as some of you know, was a godless comedian in the Netherlands. He was brought up in my grandfather's business, show business. <laughs> he owned a theater. And Dad went traveling the low countries, Luxembourg and Belgium and Holland, making people laugh. And he said later, oh, sometimes I had such a sick, sad heart inside, but I had to get the, as soon as the audience began to applaud, that was, the, that was my cake and tea, you know, to hear their applause. But then I'd go down in the depths of despair again. As a young comedian, he was a young man yet, 24 years of age, he came here to America in 1866. And uh, America was good to him, very good. He was first a carpenter's helper, and then a carpenter, and then a builder and contractor, and then a lumber dealer. He really went ahead in this country, but he had to learn English when he got here. He didn't know the English language, and he took a boarding in a home where they at least knew the Dutch language. In fact, they read the Bible in Holland at every evening meal. He thought that'd be a route. He'd have not the Bible, but the Holland people. He had a route there. But he didn't like that book. He hated it. He said one evening, according to that book, nobody's any good. <laughs> That's the first right thing he said about the Bible. He said, nobody's any book good, according to that book. Finally, he said, I'm going to leave. I, I don't pay board money to hear this read, although he had agreed that they would do that. They, that was their custom every evening. He went to another city where he wouldn't find any Dutchman either. He thought, I'll run English faster if I don't have anybody to help me. <clears throat> and one day, 4th of July, he sat on a park bench trying to read a magazine. And there was a word he couldn't understand. And there was an old lady... I'm, I feel so badly sometimes that we don't even know who she was. No record of who she was. But the old lady at the other end of the bench, and he asked, what does this word mean? And she told him and explained it. She said, you're a Hollander. Yes. Trying to learn the English language. Yes. She said, you know, I've got just the book for you. I've got a book with parallel English and Holland Columns. You read the Holland first, you can understand that. Then go across and it'll help you to decipher that, and that'll help you to learn English. And it did. He took that book home. He went to her home and got it. And he went home that night and began to read. Oh, he was so glad. Now he could really take the bull by the horns and learn the English language in a hurry. The only thing was he hadn't read far. 
she said, it's that book again. It's the Bible. It was just a New Testament. And he's often said how near he came, how close he came to throwing that book away into the garbage can. He said, I don't have to be insulted this way. I don't need somebody to tell me how bad I am. I'm good. I've been lived a moral life. I work hard. I pay my debts. Why do I have to read that? But he did want to learn English, and he was in a strange country. So by the grace of God, that prevailed, and he went on. And you know what happened? As he read the Gospels and the Acts and the conversion of Paul and his ministry and the epistles of Paul, my, he was so marvelously saved. Just reading it, nobody testifying to him. His life was revolutionized trying to learn English out of a parallel Holland-English New Testament. And immediately, oh, he wanted to tell everybody he was saved and how to be saved if they weren't. And he thought everybody would be so happy to hear it. He didn't realize that the cross is an offense. It's an offense to this world. They say what he first said. What's the matter with me? Why, why do I need saving? But we need to get the message out and get people. Dad had something that is too lacking today in the preaching, especially the conviction of sin. There's not enough of it. My brother and I were so convicted of sin the night we were saved we walked home to escape an invitation. We didn't want to hear that invitation, so we left while the last hymn was being, uh, they were preparing to sing the last hymn, and we thought, then comes an invitation. No, we both left. And we were so deeply under conviction that when we got home, or just after we got home, and Dad had followed, the phone rang. And in those days, you know, they had, they had women's, clubs or women's uh, women's union or whatever you call them, one woman would squeal to another woman what your son did, you know, and that was good. Today you do that and say, my boy, dare you. But not in that day. They called up and this woman said, Mr. Stam, I just hate to have to tell you this, but Neil and John both, I'm afraid, have been drinking. I saw them come home. Have they gone to bed? And Dad said, yeah, they went right to bed, evidently, because I'm home and they're, they're already to the world to save sinners. And uh, Luther says, ask yourself, are you a sinner? All right, then. He came to save you. <laughs> he came to save sinners. Oh, what a blessed, isn't that a blessed verse? Simple verse, but there's so much to it. And I pray that maybe when you read it again next time and read it in its context, it'll mean more to you than it ever has before. I didn't preach well, I know it, but I've done my best, and uh, these noises just don't stop. Ruthie, I was trying to escape the sound of the washer some time ago, and I went from room to room, and oh, it just followed me. And I couldn't take it. I went into my, my little den, and I was typing there. I thought, then I'll forget it. And maybe it'll, it'll occupy me anyway. I did that for about 15 minutes and I came out. And there was Ruthie standing. I said, boy, I hate to hide from you this way, Ruthie. But I just can't take that washer. When, is it, when are you going to finish with that? She said, Neil, I turned that off 20 minutes ago. <laughs> so that's the kind of a thing tinnitus is in some that's very different with different people. But we'll appreciate your prayers that when... We try to write and try to, I, I don't preach anymore. This is a very great exception. But when I try to write and 
talk over the air, that I still can do. But by the grace of God, it's gone so far. How long it'll continue, I don't know. But thank God for his grace, and we'll appreciate your prayers. Thank you very much.